Shelbourne News Center podcast. This is episode 29, and this is Dr. Benner. I'm here with Scott Bauman, my co-host, and tonight we're going to have another guest after a great one last week. We had Dr. Gil Scuderi from Northwell Orthopedics in in Manhattan, where I did my residency and, or excuse me, my fellowship at the Insol Scott Kelly Institute, and we talked about mechanical alignment and total knee arthroplasty. That was contrasted to the previous episode before that, where we talked about kinematic alignment in total knee arthroplasty with Dr. Stephen Howell. So if you're interested in knee replacement alignment, that's a hot topic, one that was covered pretty extensively at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting that we just got back from last week. Go back and check out those those episodes as those were, were great ones. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the SKC Podcast. You can go to the Shelbourne Center Podcast Facebook page or YouTube page. You can also email us if you have any questions or suggestions for new episodes at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. We've got another great topic tonight. We're looking at or we're going to be discussing blood flow restriction in, in PT. We have a great guest, what I would call an expert in the field. We have Joel Novak, physical therapist. He holds his doctorate in physical therapy and is certified in strength and conditioning through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He has an advanced education in the diagnosis and treatment of movement and muscle imbalances with the functional movement system. Additionally, like we're talking about tonight, he's a certified instructor in blood flow restriction training. He's the owner and content editor for My Performance Rehab which is a educational platform for rehab professionals. And then clinically, he works at the Community Health Network outpatient facility in Noblesville, Indiana, outside of Indianapolis. And he is involved in professional sports as he's the team physical therapist for the Indy 11 soccer team, as well as the Indy Fuel hockey team. And then some some other roles he, he has, he regularly educates graduate students as an adjunct faculty member at the University of Indianapolis. So first of all, Joel, sounds like you're a very busy guy. So thank you for your time tonight and discussing this important topic. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thanks, guys. And you do have an interesting uh, background and in, in where you're working at. It seems like you have a lot of roles, both in education as well as your caseload. So before we get into the blood flow restriction, can you just quickly talk about what what your caseload looks like now, what kind of patients or athletes you're working with and, and uh, how you got there? Yeah, I'm a full-time clinician. So my basically the entirety of my day is in clinical care and my caseload really ranges. I definitely say that I work with uh, an active population. It doesn't have to be like athletes in sports. It could be sort of just anybody that wants to stay active, be active. And when you're working in that outpatient orthopedic sports med world, you you still see all ages and demographics. I definitely work with some elderly folks that are just there for balance and walking, but I definitely, I would say I subspecialize in more of an athletic active populace. So yeah, full-time clinical care. I always take students on clinical rotations. I have a intern right now on his 15 week clinical rotation. I do a little bit of teaching with University of Indianapolis, I'm going to say remotely as well as on-site, but a little less on-site since COVID. But yes, Mm -hmm. yeah, very involved in education. And then the My Performance Rehab aspect is just something kind of on the side that I do because I I enjoy the educational content. I enjoy kind of teaching and and learning. And this was a good avenue for me to kind of uh, facilitate that. Excellent. I mean, you sound like a busy guy. And, you know, when it comes to the blood flow restriction, which is the topic of tonight, it's a it's a topic I personally am very interested in. I was at a conference in New Orleans last year at the ANA conference and heard a pretty good presentation on blood flow restriction. And the evidence that this individual was was presenting was pretty compelling. And the strength gains that he was seeing when he was instituting blood flow restriction postoperatively uh, seemed 
definitely superior than your traditional model. So uh, I know that's a, a t topic that me as a physical therapist is, is near and dear to and, and something I really want to learn more about myself and see if that's something we can institute in our practice in, in our knee clinic. But my question for you is, is how and when did you first get interested in blood flow restriction? Yeah, so I was I, I had heard some grumblings about it. I'm gonna say this was back in like 2016 ish, 2017 maybe. A anyway, all of that to say, I was actually treating an Indy 11 player who had been at Real Salt Lake, the Major League Soccer team out in Salt Lake, and we were doing some rehab. And he was just saying, "Hey, is this something you're doing here?" And and I had not been. I said I'd heard about it, but it kind of sounds a little. Um, I said kind of like meatheadish a little bit. Like you're gonna put a strap or a band around somebody and have them exercise. That sounded kind of foolish. And he literally picked up the phone and called a gentleman named uh, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who was doing uh, katsu training for several years, which is katsu sort of the bands that popularized BFR that were started in Japan. And he had been a katsu master for a while. And he was sort of on the starting to develop his own company and developing a product based upon that. But anyway, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson was the, I believe he was the lead physician for the U.S. ski and snowboarding team at the time. And he took time to just sort of send me a like 300 bibliography document that just was like, if you're really interested, look at some stuff. And then I did, I mean, cause I'm kind of a nerd. And so I looked at some things and then I got on the phone and asked him how I could get more involved, what I could learn. And he literally uh, had me come out to Park City, Utah and do some individualized training with him. And then I was pretty much all in from 2017 on. So pretty whirlwindy, but I've, I've loved it. Interesting. Joel, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I'll be honest with you. I have very little training in physical therapy other than what we do in our office. So when, as a, as a physical therapist talking to a group of orthopedic surgeons that may be listening to us. Can you tell us a little bit about the basic science behind BFR? Like, how did it come about? What is the theory behind it? And how is it put into practice? Yeah, awesome. That's a fantastic question. And I, I actually enjoy getting that question because it's always, it, it sounds a little odd. So like the mechanisms of BFR are very relevant. One of the things I just generically will say is it's it's a rehab and performance tool that sort of taps into your body's natural systems. So like stress and recovery. So like it is utilizing the concepts of traditional exercise. You're just doing so in a state of limited blood flow circulation. So that's, I always clarify that and say, you are not stopping blood flow. You are just limiting the circulation. You're modifying the blood flow into and out mm -hmm. of a limb. And so the, the mechanisms behind that are just kind of walk with me here a little bit, but muscles need oxygen so that they can work, right? And if you limit the oxygen that's available, then the muscles have to, they have to still try to work to get the job done, so to speak, but you don't need the same amount of force or load to get that work because of the lighter forces. So in other words, less oxygen availability requires your muscles to have to work a little bit harder. So you don't need the same amount of force or load to get to fatigue. So mm -hmm. you're basically making exercise harder, but your body is still responding to exercise and exertion. Like one of the things people say, oh, it's, it's easier. That makes that, that BFR sound easier. And it's, that is not true. It's hard. Like exercise is hard. You work hard, muscles get fatigued, but your body responds to that. 
when talking to people about BFR, I always hear that it's, I've never done it myself, but I, I heard it's challenging when you're doing oh, it because it, from what it sounds like, you are getting to fatigue. I don't know if the, if that's reaching that easier, lower threshold in weight or you get there faster. But my question is, knowing that it's a difficult thing to do and you're able to train in a lower weight, do, do you feel like patients uh, are able to train in a safer environment because of that? Or what, what's your thoughts on that? Again, being a rehab professional, anytime I do training, anytime I talk or I give, I get, whether it's a strength conditioning professional or people are trying to use it for performance, there's definitely, I'm talking hundreds to thousands of research articles about BFR and it's growing in its publications in regards to like performance, but it's a home run in rehab. You should be doing this in rehab because we all know that like it's, it's contraindicated to overly stress an ACL early because of graft laxity potentially or healing tissues of a meniscectomy or meniscal repair. So in the meantime, you're going to get weaker. You're going to atrophy if you cannot stress surrounding tissues. All of the exercises we do in the early phases of rehab are mostly to just to mitigate atrophy, to minimize pain, to start mobility. And so from a strength growth hypertrophy side of things, it's not really possible because we're not stressing the tissues enough to have gains. Well, with BFR, they're showing that that is actually a possibility. You can make both size and strength gains much earlier. Again, because you're getting an you're getting a muscle group to fatigue, which is what it requires to grow, but you don't have the same load, which is what you don't want to do postoperatively, early postoperative. You mentioned many papers and and you know the the bibliography that you got from the guy that was doing the the training in Japan, and and you said that there's just overall more more research on this topic than there than there really has or ever has been. Are there yeah. any papers specifically in the literature that you uh, either follow personally or point to as evidence for this working? And if so, what types of things are they looking at to prove that the outcomes are better with this method? Yeah, so just it's not always better so like better is not the the best term maybe there scott i would i would say that like one of the things that all of the research articles that are consistent that point towards what they call low load bfr versus low load versus high load and then there's a control group in some of them as well but the low load group would be doing the exact same work but in what they would call a free flow state so they're literally doing like if you're doing short arc quads or quad sets or a simple leg press exercise with uh, 30% of what you would call your one repetition max. Like that's, that's a low, those are all low load exercises that a patient would be doing. And then they would do those exact same set rep schemes with the exact same load, just under a state of their blood flow being restricted by a cuff or a band. And then they would do high load with a different group. And they would show pretty much across the board, comparable gains with the low load BFR as it would be with the, with the high load. So that's what the bulk of the research would would support. So like if you're asking me to cite like a given paper, gosh, there's there's a lot. There's an article Patterson et al. It's a 2019 article. And that's probably the single article that I would point to if I was going to say if you have to read one article about BFR, I would read that one specifically because it it takes all of the evidence up until 2019 and kind of consolidates it. So it goes through and it talks about the different types of cuffs, the material of the cuffs, the applications, the cuff pressures, how it's safe, 
different load exercises, rest periods, frequency intervals, all of that just kind of goes through all that, including the mechanisms. And I've got a few that I can definitely highlight. So one of my favorite articles to point towards that is there's an article in the Journal of Clinical Medicine by Faraz et al. And it took 48 females, 50 to 65 years old, who have knee arthritis, which I mean, super common populace, right? And they took them on a 12-week training program at two times a week. They did 30% one rep max with the low intensity group, 30% of one rep max with partial uh, with the BFR. And then they did a high intensity group, which was about 80% of the one rep max. And so long story short, they retested the BFR group, the low intensity group, and the high intensity group. And one rep max leg press was almost identical in the BFR group and the high group but the low intensity group did not make any gains. So it's like 25 to 30% gains on the two groups. They did knee extension retest and BFR and high load both made 20 to 25% gains and the low load group made no gains. They did quadricep cross-sectional area and the high load in the BFR group grew seven and 8% and the low intensity group grew a non-statistically significant amount. They did a time sit to stand functional assessment and the BFR and the high load group both improved and the low intensity group did not improve. And the part of this that I think is very meaningful is they did a Womack pain index at the end of that and 25% of the high intensity group had to drop out because it was too painful to exercise at that level of intensity. So while the gains were comparable in leg press and leg extension and timed up and go and cross-sectional area, they were all comparable gains because we understand that working out hard works, like everybody understands that. But the low load BFR group was able to get the same gains as the high load group. The low load group who did the exact same work made no appreciable gains. And the high load group had more pain because it was hard to do because of the amount of loading. Great stuff. We love we love data at the Shelbourne Knee Center. So thank you for that uh, for that review. Yeah, that, that, that was that was that's excellent. You know, so we're we're a knee clinic. This is a knee podcast. I'm sure you could talk about plenty of other things and other extremity problems, but let's boil it down to just the knee itself. So, h- how do you use this around the knee, and how do you relate it to specific problems for patients that you see and treat? Yeah, I would say that the bulk of my knee pain patients get BFR more than upper quarter. Definitely like not to, not to say anything negative about upper quarter BFR. It's just the knee is a home run for it as well, just because of those demands. Right. So like most of my knee patients again, have some, whether it's patellofemoral post-op total knees, post-op ACLs, meniscectomies, um, patellar alignments, quad tendon repairs. I mean, you, you name it they're going to have issues at the knee and loading mostly the anterior structures of the knee are challenging to build strength, but necessary. And so a lot of times my early starting points is BFR and isometrics, because again, if, if we're, if we're going to cite the literature, we understand the isometrics alone are not enough for, well, at least non-weight bearing isometrics are not Mm -hmm. enough for gains and strength, but with BFR, they're going to get fatigued. I use BFR with them on a new step machine and that takes the machine I was already going to warm them up on. And now they get an actual muscle fatigue versus sort of a casual tissue warm up. I use it on a shuttle leg press machine with them at a, at 
25 to 50 pounds. I mean, almost nothing. And again, they're shaky by the time they're done where, but without the BFR it's their, their knee is not the limiter is my, is my point of my rehab utilization. Muscle mm-hmm. fatigue is limiting them, which is a home run in my world. Now for, right. for something like a, like a post-op ACL reconstruction, yes. doesn't matter what graft you're using. How does right. the, the utilization of blood flow restriction in this population differ with the early stage rehab? You're talking couple weeks out of surgery versus late stage preparing to return to sport, or is there a difference? No, it's totally different. I would, I would agree with that totally. So we had a long talk early in the introductory phases when I was trying to bring this to our network specifically because it sounds like it could be a potentially dangerous thing, right? You're, you're limiting blood flow and that the modification of blood flow seems like it has some, some concerns. So one of the big things that was brought up by our, our our orthopedic group was that the endothelial damage that happens from a tourniquet that is a concern on doing that again to someone. And the evidence, literally, that's why I cited that one article, that 2019 article. I think there's a quote, I don't want to misquote it, but it says something along the lines of the totality of the literature reveals no adverse reaction in regards to venothromboembolisms. And just like with exercise, when you release growth hormone, you, you're you also releasing what's called, I mean, you guys know this, vascular endothelial growth factor. So that that article that I was pointing to, that, that 2019 article, a lot of it talks about that the endothelial damage from a tourniquet is actually helped to be repaired through like angiogenesis and kind of some vascular growth. So the early phases, again, the reason I'm spending time talking about that is because our surgical group said, as long as you've waited, a, like they were saying, 10 days to two weeks to make sure that they're kind of out of the woods with that a little, they were good with that application. There is definitely some application earlier than that in the literature, like day one post-op. Our group tends to do 10 days to two weeks, and mostly a lot of it is around incisional closing. So you're not trying mm-hmm. to put additional fluid distally if you still have kind of open or healing incisions. So you're not trying to put additional stress on that. So that was what our group had asked us to kind mm-hmm. of wait a little bit. So if you've got, again, whether it's a ACL where you've got an anterior incision, if you're doing a patellar tendon autograft or you're doing a total knee anterior or any of that, like that incision's a little bigger, takes a little longer. So there's a delay on that. And then early phase rehab is a lot of like yielding isometrics, small range. If it is weight bearing, it's usually partial or, or not as intense versus later stage. I'm literally doing box jumping and cutting and cable runouts or sports cord runouts. I mean, literally any sport functional demand you can think of. So correct me if I'm wrong, you know, whether you're talking early stage rehab or late stage rehab, a lot of the exercises can be the same as they would be without BFR, but you're just putting a blood flow restriction cuff on the patient to, to reach that fatigue level faster. So like if you if you think about the uh, again I'm going to use so I work with a lot of athletes and I've got a, I I have both professional hockey and professional soccer players right now on my caseload and both of those groups are seeing me because of trauma and or overuse injuries and they're at a place where they need to keep up their training but the stresses from the demands are not they're not ready for that so I'm trying to train to a level of fatigue that is very difficult, even at the professional level. Like these guys are getting exhausted and feeling 
muscular fatigue without strain of the injured tissues, which that's complicated to do in rehab, right? Like you got, you can appreciate that that's super challenging. So to put them in an, again, a stressful environment that they can build from and recover from because it's not straining injured tissues, that's a big win. Do you feel like that allows you to focus on a little bit more strengthening earlier on in the process with ACL reconstruction post-ops? Yes, I feel like I mean, it sounds like a pretty natural, sounds like a pretty natural uh, place to utilize this. If you know, we, we all struggle, I think with start when to start strengthening, especially on the ACL knee, you know, we we do contralateral grafts. So we're taking teledentic grafts from the opposite knee. So that's a different, different set of problems or different Mm -hmm. set of potential problems that we're, that we're thinking about. But you know, when we take the graft from the same knee, one of the main limiting factors to return to strength is we don't want to make the knee swell and we don't want to cause range of motion loss because that inhibits our ability to be able to get strength back. So is this something that you find that once you implement that once you implement a BFR, you were able to be a little bit more aggressive with strengthening earlier on in the process post-op from ACL reconstruction? Yeah, definitely. I I always talk about with my patients that you're not you're not trying to divide time between restoration of terminal knee extension and then flexion secondarily, but in swelling obviously too. So like if I can focus in session on muscle fatigue and hard work, then they can kind of take their home program and only focus on tissue mobility, right? Like they can work on that part at home because their muscles will need that recovery because we've been able to be a little more aggressive on the strength side. Just like, you know, like not every day is leg day, right? You know, so it's that same idea with the rehab side of things. If they've gotten adequate fatigue and rehab, and it doesn't cause additional swelling or additional pain or trauma, then we've done a good job in rehab to allow them to focus on mobility at home. And then when we follow up and see them again, we can do more. Along with that, just to go aside from that, that, that's definitely going to be a little bit independent as far as the patient and follow-up visits are concerned. So some of it, some of the concern is, well, if you're not seeing somebody a few times a week, how do you how do you segue that? And that definitely is for sure a challenge when you don't have BFR at home. Yeah, that was one of my questions. This is only being done in your clinic under your supervision. You're not sending anybody home with this? Well, that's a great question. So that, that kind of dives into the products, right? And so different companies have different products. And while I do have a company that I have alignment with, and I do think it's a great product, I also can easily, easily, easily point to the literature and talk about the variety of successful and safe applications of cuffs. So I do have cuffs at the clinic that we use, but the type of cuffs that we use and the type of cuffs that I can recommend people can get themselves. Conversely, there are cuffs on the market that you can only use and only apply if you have a medical background. So like if you're a physician, chiropractor, physical therapist, athletic trainer, you will have a medical license to be able to use BFR with certain products. But that is just wholly not necessary. And Mm -hmm. the literature supports that unquestionably. You wouldn't have any reservations sending a patient home with a product that would be deemed safe. Correct. The, okay. the, the What makes it safe is you have a product that cannot stop blood flow. If you have a product that does not allow for limb occlusion fully, or you have safety nets where it won't allow you to utilize a product where you do not have blood flowing through the musculature, then 
then yes, mm-hmm. it's it's not a problem at all. Now, are you measuring limb occlusion when you put these on, or is that something where it's based on patient feel? This is where I disagree with some of the people in the field, and I I don't know this podcast is long enough to talk about that in this format, but I have a pretty hardline stance about limb occlusion pressure in as much as if you don't have a product or a way to know that you are not occluding your limb, you should use a product or a Doppler or some way to measure limb occlusion pressure and and go that direction. However, and I can't say however enough, that is not necessary nor relevant for successful BFR. And again, I don't know what all literature is presented to you guys, but I could literally put the stacks of articles about the variety of success and safety with from under 30% limb occlusion pressure to 90% limb occlusion pressure. And that range is colossally huge. And although we'd like it to be more specific than that, because we like to have hard science and we'd like to know, well, Scott's limb occlusion pressure is 100 and 40 millimeters of mercury and Rodney's limb occlusion pressure is 150 millimeters of mercury. And if we take 50% of Scott's limb occlusion pressure, then he's gonna be at 70 and Rodney's gonna be at 75. There's no freaking way that that five millimeters of mercury makes any difference at all in your personalized approach to BFR. Mm-hmm. What matters is that you're not occluding the limb. So you can work safely and effectively in that range. And all the literature points to that. And every article that says, well, we found that 60 might be better than 80 in this population in this um, application. We actually found that 80 was better here and 80 had success there and 40% had success there. So again, my point of saying all that is there's all of these articles that cite limb occlusion pressure as a methodology and it shows to be successful and safe. Conversely, there are articles that show elastic wraps where it's practical that have wild success. Katsu was the first to market. Everybody based all of their information on Katsu. Mm Katsu is an elastic-based product that goes up to 200 millimeters of mercury or or more because it's elastic. So its, uh, its pressure is not an internal pressure like blood pressure is. It's a pressure related to the band itself because the material properties of that band are elastic. Mm-hmm. So not trying to get into the minutiae, I'm just trying to say, I do not measure limb occlusion pressure as long as I know they have a pulse. Yes, you are, and that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I said, we, we we love data at the Shelbourne Knee Center. So getting into the yeah. details is what we're really after and talking to somebody who has some experience with this. Yeah, right on. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I'm kind of passionate about that because my big takeaway is, and I don't want to be this way, but, you know, everybody's trying to sell a product, right? You know, you got, you know, Pepsi and Coke is my analogy all the time. I'm trying to sell a product and tell you that theirs is better. And it just flat out doesn't exist. No product's better. No application has been shown to be safer or more effective. The concept is just like the human body, it's a range. You don't give everybody the exact mm-hmm. same weight in their hand and say, this is the stress and the stimulus that you need to make a gain, right? Like it's no different than with restrictive pressure. Of, of a cuff or a band. We don't know that 70% on Rodney is gonna work at 70% of Scott. Is that independent of diagnosis that you're treating with BFR? For example, you have a you know 20 year old uh, offensive lineman for playing college football, which you're treating their ACL, for example, versus uh, 80 year olds 
90 pound lady that's recovering from a total knee is totally, you, yeah. so you're yeah. not worried about the the limb occlusion percentage uh, so how are you how are you gauging that that fatigue level or that pressure that they're feeling or is it based on rpe or, or what are you using for that yeah th- those are great questions so jeremy lenicky is like a a wizard in this world like he's the most published most studied like he's he's brilliant in this area and he did a paperback and i'm going to say 2014 don't don't cite me on the time because again i'm just trying to spitball because i've i really do have hundreds of articles that i'm trying to just pull from and off top of my head some and that's not necessarily my 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 skill set but jeremy lenicky had an article where he basically said not even tissue density just circumference and cuff width mattered so not even density. So you just named a, a definitely denser 20-year-old lineman versus an 80-year-old older lady that's 100 pounds. Like their tissue density is going to be totally different, but their limb size is what mattered more so when they added restrictive pressure and exercises to it. So yes, just hmm. like I would I would be more aggressive with a 20-year-old than I would an 80-year-old. I'm going to say the same thing for restrictive pressure. I'm not pumping her vasculature up to the 80% mark like i would be that that young man specifically yes i mean i do think there's some some play with that some of the best literature out there cites that anyone new to any stress on your cardiorespiratory system and cardiovascular system should not do much strenuous things with bfr but that is not exclusive to bfr that's true with exercise you wouldn't want to exert on that system and so bfr is just tapping into that physiology anyway so, for example, if I've got somebody that's new-ish to exercise that I need to rehab, I'm putting the BFR band on them for maybe five minutes and literally having them just do new step for five minutes. And that's that's their exposure from that that day. And they're mm-hmm. going to leave feeling more muscle fatigue than they would have otherwise. And it gives me an opportunity to see how they handled that stress in their system. So we want it to be really sciencey. I know everybody loves the word sciencey, right? That's that's, <laughs> but but it's just not there with that application. Like, does that does that make sense on where I'm trying to say? Like, for for yeah. example, if you yeah, were going to say, well, you would use sixty uh, percent LOP on this total knee in phase one of da, 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 it just that doesn't exist. Gotcha. Like that that just that we'd like it to. I'd love to be awesome if it did make my life a lot easier. So no real standard treatment for this. No, and and any time that somebody would try to put that out there, I could easily come back with different articles that would combat that attempt at a standard. It, okay. it has shown somewhat that if that you can be more aggressive on restrictive pressure, lower quarter than upper quarter, and I would say that makes sense if you think about the superficial anatomy where the thigh is very thick and you can like circumferentially when you're going around that you got a lot of tissue to go through so you're more or less you're you're less likely to pin a nerve to entrap a vessel than you are kind of that proximal upper arm so it tends to have the literature support more that lower range restrictive pressure upper body and higher restrictive pressure lower body that that tends to be a truth in the literature so there is some standard in regards to that, I would say. Gotcha. 
Let's shift gears on to the uh, older crowd. We see a lot of older arthritic patients at our office, and uh, we're always trying to find things that will that will work for non-surgical treatment of knee arthritis. We're really focused at our office on range of motion and the the fact, and we uh, I will say it is a fact, even though I think other people may say it may say otherwise, that you can and should improve range of motion non-surgically before we go in for total knee arthroplasty, and that anybody who goes for a total knee should have their range of motion maximized and it can improve and it can improve. I would say that for, from our perspective, anyway, we think that after you've made those range of motion gains, there definitely is a role for strengthening, of course, because then you're able to be more, more likely to be able to get some gains from that. Once your range of motion is back, the same is true after total knee replacements that we think that the, the return range of motion is, is the most important early early thing to, to to focus on as well as swelling and pain control, but that getting all the strength back in in my opinion is a is a place where a lot of surgeons miss out on really maximizing patient outcomes. So talk a little bit about how to utilize BFR for osteoarthritis of the knee and for post-op total knee patients. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with everything you just said, though, because I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like it, mobility over strength, you got to be able to move before you try to stack strength on that. I totally agree. And so if BFR is something I'd like to do with somebody, but it but it uh, is going to come at the expense of time spent on mobility, we, we just kick that BFR down the road. So I'm not going to spend time mm-hmm. on that if they haven't restored adequate mobility. So, yes, I, I'm all in on that as well. As far as what I do with the non-operative, I've definitely had several people that have not ended up needing a knee and or hip surgery because they most of their issues were imbalanced. Yes, they had their arthritis, no question, but they were relying on their static structures to help support them and not their dynamic surrounding musculature. And so if we can tap into that and take the load and stress off of the intra-articular elements and we can kind of focus on extra articular things, then yeah, I'm all in on that. Like, let's, let's do that. And so, yeah, I, I do apply BFR early. We do pretty simple things. I mean, sit to stands with BFR, you know, I mean, it really is that, that simple, like assisted squats, like literally holding onto some TRX straps and sitting slowly into a chair. We do the same thing with lunges at a very split stance position where they're not dropping low. I do a lot of yielding isometric holds, like a lot of let's just get this leg shaky holding you in place, but make sure that you're in a position where you're not, again, relying on your static structures. So when you're done, you just don't enjoy the work because it's hard, but it did not it did not impact your knee negatively as far as your pain. Now, with this population, are you doing similar sets and reps in terms of the number of sets and reps as you would without BFR? You're just applying the the BFR cuff. Yeah, no, that's that is a phenomenal question. It tends to need to be more volume with BFR. BFR, you tend to like the the most researched hands down is the you do the first set of something with 30 repetitions and you follow that with three sets of 15. That is the most researched set rep scheme that you'll find in BFR literature. And the concept is I'll try to make this short. You do 30 reps of something where your blood flow is restricted. And what happens there is you fatigue the most easily recruited motor units first, okay? And so the BFR band is still on when you're on your 30-second rest interval, maybe 60-second rest interval if they're really gassed. And then you resume a set of 15. But because you are still restricted with your blood flow, the, the blood flow in and out is still limited, right? So you, you don't get the oxygen 
in as quickly and you don't flush out the metabolites and waste products as quickly. So they're sitting in a fatigued environment and you're asking them to work again. And so now those first easily recruited motor units are not available. So they have to recruit additional motor units, which is how muscle growth works. So Mm -hmm. that is how BFR taps into the musculoskeletal system specifically in growth. And they need to do more volume to get to that fatigue. And it's because the stress, not the stress, the load is lighter. So 30 followed by three sets of 15, that's 75 reps. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a lot. But it's something very simple to do that you're asking of them. So I'm give, I was given an example of like a sit to stand. I may not have them do 30 sit to stands, you know, like, but that's the most studied application. I might have them do 20 and then three sets of 10 because that's all they can take right now. But yes, I do do a first heavy front loaded sequence and then you have to taper it down and, and they'll get fatigued. You'll have to taper it down. They won't be able to do multiple sets of that. But that's that's sort of the science behind why you're doing more volume. Again, if, you, if I was going to go back to the literature that I was citing earlier and in all the other literature that they're comparing BFR with, with a free flow state of the same set rep scheme, the same work. So they they call it matched work, right? So patient A and patient B are doing matched work, one without BFR, one with, and across the board, the BFR person is making gains in size and strength and function, and the non-BFR person is not because it's too light of a load to to benefit them in those departments. I see one of the benefits of BFR being its utilization across the continuum of diagnoses, everything from non-op OA to post-op total need to post-op ACL reconstruction. Now, with that being said, are there any contraindications for the use of this? Is there anybody that you cannot use this on because of XYZ? Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic question. So my one of my first statements that I usually tell people is if you haven't been told that it's not safe for you to exercise, then generally speaking, you you can do BFR. That's a very general statement that that has some caveats to it, though. Okay. So that, that requires some elaboration. For example, no one studied anyone that's pregnant, right? Like right now that is contraindicated. Active cancer or cancer medications is contraindicated. And part of that being, we just talked earlier about the vascular endothelial growth factor element of of things. And we know tumors like blood flow and blood supply. And so we're not trying to grow tumor size. I mean, that's maybe a little far-fetched, but the literature is not going to study. That sounds like a bad idea. I agree. (laughs) <laughs> so, right. So like no one's going to study that. Right. So it's like, yeah, let's not do that. And any of the any individuals with untreated high blood pressure, they talk about skin grafts and vascular grafts are, are negative where, you know, like you, you're trying to heal the, like in that vasculature and you don't want to stress that lymphedema is a definite. No, but that's not swelling. That's like, you know, like an actual lymphedema complication, because, again, you're pushing fluid distally. So if they already have difficulty with lymphatics, you're not trying to do that more so in, in that world, too. There's some prior history of DVTs and strokes that they that that has been uh, frowned upon where they would say any prior history is contraindicated. I've definitely used it with individuals who have had prior DVTs and strokes uh, just years and years ago. I would definitely not do it with anyone recent, but I've had plenty of I've never had a knock on wood, you know, I don't want to say that, but like I've never had a real complication with any of that. And again, the literature would support me in that application. But yes, those are some of the contraindications that exist in the literature, not not to be all-encompassing, but to name a few. Mm -hmm. Some of the precautions that they talk about are peripheral vascular disease and peripheral neuropathy, just because, again, they're having some distal sensory things and you're 
challenging the distal neurovascular structures. Varicosity is one of those concerns about insufficient veins and valves. That's a precaution, but not an all-out contraindication, depending on the severity of that. One of the things I typically tell people is if you have multiple comorbidities, that's a gray, and it's hard to know which ones. There's a couple of authors out there that have put together some content that would say, here's a good medical screening that you can utilize. That's pretty good. They put out some good things. Some of it's still a little bit their own opinion, but some of it's very sound medical advice. So we usually informed consent and then screen on all of our patients that we do BFR on, and it just asks them to identify if they have any of those precautions or contraindications. And then if they're only in the precautions world, we sort of look at which precautions exist and and move forward accordingly. And, mm-hmm. and I would advise everybody, anytime we talk about this, I always ask our physical therapists not to make a unilateral decision. If they're uncertain, they need to reach out to the surgeon, medical team, whoever is working with that patient as well, just to kind of talk talk out the, the concerns. Because again, you're stressing tissues mm-hmm. for sure. But again, my argument right. is still, if you're able to exert and exercise, this is exercise and exertion. Your vasculature is just under a stress, but like not to be too dramatic, but every time you squeeze a muscle, you shut off the blood flow, right? Like, I mean, literally every squeeze of a muscle pump shuts the blood flow off for a moment momentarily. So, I mean, you, your body's used to this concept. So all this is great content. It's been a great conversation about the ins and outs of BFR. A couple more questions. The, the first one, what avenues did you take to learn this methodology and, and treatment? And Next question would be, I know you have some courses on this approach, so can you tell us a little bit more about those courses and how other people can can learn this methodology and, and treatment? Yeah, like I said, I, I was trained in Park City, Utah, where I um, learned from Dr. Jim Strake-Gunderson about BFR, and um, his company was Be Strong, and so that was my first start into the BFR literature and the BFR world was with uh, that product and came to understand a lot about the background and the history and what makes it safe, what makes it effective, the efficacy of it, populations to use it on. And then from there, I decided I wanted to kind of create my own content that had that didn't have product branding on it necessarily. So my course is an unbranded course that just kind of goes through the totality of the literature. So you can find my course at uh, My Performance Rehab, and it goes through the foundational elements of BFR. Again, what what makes it safe, why it's effective, who you can use it on, the best practices, how to utilize fatigue, kind of the current and future literature. I also have a second course that's coming out soon that's going to be more application-based. So everybody always asks about like, what types of exercise do you use? And walk me through how you exactly would utilize this and apply this. And, and I think that's a needed second course. It's not out quite yet, but the foundational course is Again, I know I'm biased towards it, but it's it's pretty comprehensive in understanding the history, mechanics, safety, efficacy, all of that, that just really kind of builds upon, wow, BFR really works. And, and for me, when I was going through the efficacy on on the article that I, or I mean, the, um, the course that I have, a lot of it was I was on purpose trying to bring forward different populations so that everybody could kind of have an understanding of who all it works for instead of being, let's just focus on ACL or let's just focus on shoulder. I, I literally went through men, women, walking studies, weight room squat studies, sprinting, rowing, cycling, pain, osteoarthritis, <laughs> jumping, tendons. Like I literally tried to hit a summary of the types of applications of BFR because it's that vast. So yeah, that 
that's sort of where my background and kind of what I've tried to bring forward is is the totality of the literature. It's it's pretty robust. And after that big review, what would you say would be your take home points for our listeners to tonight about BFR? My take home points would be if you're at all interested in utilizing BFR or learning about BFR, I, I really the the number one thing that ever that always concerns people is that it sounds dangerous. And I just want to point out that it is not. You if you are not fully shutting off blood flow to a working limb, this is a very safe practice and can absolutely change how you can gain strength when you're struggling with that. So if it's something that you struggle with to exercise or exert because it causes pain. BFR is a great opportunity for you. So don't be afraid to give it a try, especially if you just want to throw it on for five minutes and just see what it feels like. I think that's a really good opener for a lot of people and a lot of practitioners. Great stuff, Joel. Well, thanks for joining us on the Shelburne Knee Center podcast. I think this is going to be a great resource for people that are interested in uh, the BFR technique. And we really appreciate you sharing your expertise and training and uh, a lot of data with us tonight, which, which we really like. So appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. As always, you can hit us up on our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. You can visit our SKC Podcast YouTube and Facebook pages or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. This episode and all of our episodes are brought to you by the Shelbourne Knee Center. If you've ever been told you need a knee replacement, you may not need it. Many treatments can reduce your pain and restore proper knee function without surgery. Come in and see us and get a second opinion from the knee experts at the Shelbourne Knee Center. Listen to our podcast to learn more wherever you listen to your podcasts. And call us at Shelbourne Knee Center today, 317-924-8636, or visit us at fixknee.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.